Today, we travel beyond the wind door. I can't tell if my energy comes from the fact that I was I was drinking an energy drink earlier or that I'm just so hyped about this game. I think it's both. It is both. It absolutely is both. So we've been talking about the community things. I was ranking the various side activities. Side activities in the game. And a lot of my favorite ones are not necessarily the combat focused ones because as I've said before, the combat didn't necessarily hold my interest mm-hmm. as much this time. And also some of them end in these kind of non-starter things where it's yeah. sort of like, we're setting something up for later, which none of them feel like they're going to be characters who are vitally important in future things. Okay, Not in the so... same way that, like, uh, say, things with Harry in the first game were a good way of planting the seeds of his characterization for this. Yeah. Because I don't believe that Cletus Cassidy is going to be a main threat in at least the next numbered installment. And I also don't think that Chameleon at the end of the unidentified target thing is going to be a main threat. So all they can really be is the subject of another chain of side missions, mm. which just feels like that means that we've spun it out into two side missions then, which feels extraneous and a bit uh, unnecessary. I'm not entirely sure this is true. Or rather, I agree that Chameleon isn't going to be a main threat. He just doesn't have the ability to go toe-to-toe with either Spider-Man. But when you have a man that specializes in disguises and infiltration, I suspect that either Otto or Norman is going to make use of him to hurt the Spider-Man in Game 3. Going off of previous experience here, which I'll get into during my ending essay. I do find it weirdly, not anticlimactic, but the fact that as soon as you get done with all the hunter blinds and bases, you find that one member of Craven's family has killed all of the others, and then there's the implication that they've also died because you hear a gunshot, and then Peter or Miles or whoever you could put it with is like, wait, so there was all this buildup and now they're all dead? Yeah, all of that is weird because like it ends really quite sort of abruptly where it's like, I've killed all of them, including my mother. And then Craven implies that he has an assassin who like killed the last one. And I'm just sort of like, I mean, this just adds to my frustrations with Craven, which we'll get into. Which but, we'll get into. I've got the list here, so... Starting with my least favorite, uh, the symbiote nests. They're kind of like they're fine. They're a, like they're a survival challenge, but they don't really add any story. They're just an expansion of the final act of the game. And also that Peter is exhausted and everything like that. Yeah. yeah. The unidentified target really hard to pull off. Hundred blinds and bases we just went over. The flame we went over. Spider bots was the most frustrating because there was definitely the implication, oh, this is going to tie into Across the Spider-Verse. And then the culmination of Spider-Bots is Star-Lord. Who? Because we suddenly get this character 
that is supposed to be associated with Across the Spider-Verse, but she was cut from the movie, so now we don't know how she relates to any of this. Yeah, like she, Delilah. She, she, she drops Miguel's name, so we know that she's associated with Miguel somehow, but we have no idea who she actually is, so that yeah. kind of ends with a wet fart. That That is the frustration of it, and I think it's meant to be that she was like someone who ran a bar where a bunch of villains would hang out and yeah that, that's of, that that's what i find out when i looked it up because i was like I, I don't understand what i just saw so yeah I, I had the same thing the one thing i like about it stylistically like people would say oh it has a similar art style to spider-verse is like i don't think that's actually what i got from it for me this looked more like a sort of ps1 blocky graphics that was uh, like yeah, you know right. and yeah. and the different dimensionalities was the crisp PS5 Peter <laughs> looking in at this and it's just a lady who has like slightly sort of Lara Croft Tomb Raider sort mm, of uh, yeah that's exactly what I was thinking as well that that design you're right yeah the blockiness of it and the way that she just sort of all the spider bots like zoom in like they're sort of emeralds in a spyro game or something so I liked that but like you say the fact that I mean Across the Spider-Verse had its own troubled production so mm -hmm. like I yeah. don't doubt that it was difficult to get things that were pinned down do you know what you absolutely have in the movie and then things change also so, the movie like, itself was so long so something had to be cut yeah exactly so whatever i enjoyed it for it like it was satisfying even in and of itself because with a lot of the spider bots as you catch them and they're specific the spider manual controlling will react to it in some way but because you can be playing as either peter or miles they all have unique things that they say mm -hmm. for it and there's one that i think is meant to be like a version of spider-man that is peter and mj's daughter that would be mayday parker the spectacular spider girl who is part of a separate run of marvel comics involving the children of a lot of established heroes remind me to talk about the m2 verse sometime and when I caught that with Miles, Miles said, huh, I think Pete would really like this one. <laughs> and yeah. th that was cute. But yeah, no, it's a fun thing. Ends a bit anticlimactically. Marco's memories. He's another villain. I sort of didn't finish this point earlier, but other villains that get sort of... Uh, redemption like, arcs. Redemption arcs. There's a mission with Tombstone. And Tombstone quite abruptly has kind of got out of the game and is just working at Coney Island and is just kind of humble, but still a bit rough around the edges. He gets kidnapped and there's a mission with Peter and Agent Venom Harry where you free him and it's a fun time. Tombstone, a.k.a. Lonnie Lincoln, was an intriguing choice for a character redemption. When he was originally introduced in the 90s, he was a foil for Robbie Robertson, the number two at the Bugle. And so in fighting Tombstone, Peter was standing up to this childhood bully that threatened one of the most decent men Peter had ever known. As a result, he is a very dislikable character in the comics. In the Insomniac game, however, the voice casting and character art goes out of its way to remind us that in spite of being an albino, Lincoln is a black man, and therefore might be a criminal for the same reason that many poor black men are shunted into those roles. 
Likewise, there is no connection between Tombstone and Robbie, even though both of them are present in the Insomniac games, so it allows us to judge Tombstone on his own merits. This is one of those few moments where I'm sorry they didn't do anything with Tombstone and Miles, as that could have been an intriguing moment, the hardened Lonnie Lincoln seeing young Miles bearing the spider mantle. Thinking specifically of that one moment in No Way Home. But then you have Marco, Sandman, who is part of this big set piece at the start of the game where he is... He's, he's the harbinger of Craven, and he mm. something has been done to him that has turned him into basically a kaiju. Yes. But, but now you get to do this side quest where you recover all of Marco's memories, and that helps reorder Flint Marco's mind so that he's stable again, and then you get to present all these memories to his daughter so that we know that, okay, he was doing so hard to, like, stay on the straight and narrow. Craven fucked that up just like he did for Kurt Connors, but maybe now Flint can have some kind of peace even if he mm. is in prison. Yeah, it's a nice thing. I think it's a little tricky, and the opening thing is... Like, a lot of people really like the way that this game opens. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was, like, it's a bit much because it's sort of, like, the stuff that happens in that opening thing, Flint messes up huge parts of the city. Mm. And, like, one video I saw was saying that, like, the first responders, it makes it feel like it's a sort of the aftermath of a World Trade Center or something mm. like that. So it's a bit much to do that and then ask you to sympathize with him and like yes he was exploited he was not in his usual state of mind but like as i was playing the opening segment and you hear flint vocalize you know his torment and everything you know it's sort of hard for me to like sympathize it's like flint you are destroying so much it's a bit messy but it ultimately ends quite nicely i kind of like the opening because a it gets to showcase Peter and Miles working together. Oh yeah, I love especially that. especially the whole like Peter being able to take advantage of Miles's power set, the two of them working together to take down Marco and everything like that, but it's also significant because it sets up at the beginning uh, I need your help. <laughs> uh, Mr. Morales, is it? Uh, are you sure this isn't something you can handle yourself? I'm sure. <laughs> okay, class. Uh, read chapter four or five or whatever. Miles, I need this job. If the principal comes back and sees I'm gone, I'm gonna get fired. I know, but you gotta see this. Marco, why today? I'm so getting fired. And obviously, given what's going on with Marco, we can see why. But then it's bookended with the end, where Miles is like, "I got this. I don't. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't need your help anymore. I can take care of this stuff myself. You work on you, man." So I like the juxtaposition of that, that but I, nice. but I get but I get where you're coming from, where it's like Flint is seen as this destructive presence that may make it a little bit difficult to sympathize with. And the only thing I can say is is that 
fucking mental trauma is a bitch, man. Uh, it is. Like, it's, it's not like a major thing. I think ultimately it sticks the landing. It's just like, this is why it's not further up on the list. For me, I sort of already have a deep sympathy for Flint Marco, and not for the reason you think. One could argue back and forth on whether the Raimi film does a good job of making Flint a complicated antagonist. But for me, Flint was one of the early examples of long-term villains that Peter managed to help support into doing better. Along with the original Prowler Hobie Brown, the complicated man of privilege and violence Thomas Fireheart, Mark Raxton the Molten Man, and Edward Whelan, who was turned into the monstrous Vermin by Baron Zemo. For a while, Flint was a reserve avenger and a mercenary working for Silver Sable, herself originally an antagonist introduced in the Spider-Man comics. Sadly, it sounds like during the post-One More Day comics, Flint went back to being a villain. When the fans were unhappy with this development, he returned to being a complicated anti-hero, and then was reinvented into the more complex, traumatized version of himself during the Gauntlet storyline in 2009. It's this comic story which invents Flint's daughter Chemia, as well as Sandman's ability to make duplicates of himself, so the Insomniac game was clearly drawing on that story to influence their own version of Flint Marco. The Prowler stashes, it's a nice thing where, again, going into the theme of former villains recuperating and trying to make amends, Aaron reaches out to Miles and says, I'm out of the game, and there's some Prowler tech at various like hideouts I had stationed around the city. I'm asking you to be the one who gets this off the streets. And in doing that, it's a way of Miles and Aaron repairing their relationship because each Prowler stash, like Miles is still expressing like, you can't be doing this and like, I'm not going to approve the stuff you did in the past. But because each of those stashes is related to a memory of Aaron's life. And and, and specifically his father and everything and their relationship. Yeah. it's It it's, sets up some really good conversations and healing, which is part of the reason why the culmination of that arc works really well. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm juxtaposing it specifically with the arc between Peter and Felicia in the first Spider-Man DLC. Yeah. Because it, he's going around collecting all of these things and we find out that it was a trap. Mm -hmm. Also, she could get her stuff back from the uh, holding cell. Yeah. Uh, what, was it Hammerhead or was it the cops? I thought it was. I, I forget. Yeah. I think she turns them into the cops and then it was the cops that had uh, all of her old equipment and stuff like that. So when this gets set up for Miles, and he thought, oh my God, it was all just so he could steal something from my mom's apartment. And he thought, oh no, 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 he was serious this whole time. You misread the situation. Aaron is genuinely trying to repair this. And that mm. means that they're going forward with a stronger relationship into the next game. Yes. And it's all part of like Miles, like being able to actually give people a second chance. So this being mm. part of it, it's a great side mission. In retrospect, I might actually have put that higher, but mm. I like the other ones as well. Number six is the Mysteriums, which uh, 
that whole thing with Mysterio is, you know, he's got the business set up and there's bugs in these various sites they have set up and you have mm -hmm. to go in and rescue people from them who are trapped in the virtual reality. And in each of them, there's a sort of version of Mysterio that is more akin to his classic persona, who is mm -hmm. sort of being like, you know, watch out, Spider-Man. Well, not just like that, that, but like it's a darker version because it's got the skull inside the yeah. Honestly, that's a look from Mysterio I've never seen done before. And it's a good way of signaling that there's something seriously wrong going on here without revealing exactly what quite yet. And with each one, you get a recording, and the recording is sort of s seeming to tell a story of this company being set up, the struggles of it, because everyone associates him with his criminal past, and right. it's simultaneously like they can't get funding because of his criminal past, but also people want to use the Mysterio name for marketing for people, mm -hmm. like the general public will get more interest and Quentin Beck just wants to move beyond that. Right. And there is the implication where he's like, well, if I can't be a legitimate business person, then I'll just be a villain again. And then mm. the culmination of that where we find out, oh no, no, it was the two women working with him this whole time that wanted to use the Mysteriums in order to steal people's data. And they were Timely. setting it up. Yes. <laughs> and they were setting it up so that Mysterio would take the fall. But even at the end, when the women are taken into custody and Miles is like, so what's next for you, man? And he's like. So can I tell everyone Mysterio is a good guy now? <laughs> Mysterio will always be a villain. Just as Spider-Man will always be a hero. It's when you start looking at the people behind the masks that things get messy. Yeah, yeah, that that one really deals with mm -hmm. because the whole idea of Mysterio is it's mirages, it's illusions, yeah. and things like that. And with this one, it's also up in the air exactly how many of the recordings you hear were genuine, because mm -hmm. some of the later ones paint Mysterio as acting a lot more sort of villainous, and you are siding with the women because, you know, yeah. in the recordings, he's coming across quite creepy, and these two women are people who work with him, and you're inclined to believe them. And then as you go further into it, you realise the truth of it, and it's not even like a triumphant saving of yeah. him and, you know, justice being restored. I think it's just like, it kind of ends quite sad. Well, it's it's ambiguous. Yeah. I think it works because what you were saying in a moment ago, we don't know how much of it was real and how much of it was fake. But as the saying goes, the best deceptions are two parts truth to one part lie. Yeah, it. I think it's the best sort of side story with Mysterio that you could craft and i think it rates very highly for me the final recording of the two women that were working with beck seems to paint a black and white picture the suggestion that they always wanted to manipulate quentin and use his tech to their own ends but because we don't know how much of the earlier recordings were faked there is the possibility that once upon a time 
the women were willing to work with Beck in good faith. But if they felt threatened by his emotional instability, once they found out the Mysteriums could be used to make them rich, it's possible that the plan was as much about protecting themselves from Beck as it was about getting paid. That ending conversation between Miles and Quentin, the way it's framed, it could just be Beck being regretful that an attempt to go straight led to others being hurt anyway. Or he could be admitting that maybe he has some culpability for the way things turned out. And then pretty much everything else on my, like, the side uh, mission stuff is stuff that is serving the community. Mm -hmm. Because... I love Robbie Robertson as a character. Mm -hmm. Um, So his commentary on things that are going on in the city as they're taking photographs, Mm. it doesn't reveal as much about Robbie as a character. He's literally just a voice in the background. We don't get to see explorations of that, but because I love him so much, as a counterpoint to Jonah, I was happy to have his voice accompanying both Peter and Miles through all of that. Exactly. Like That's what I like about it, is that it's not exactly a side story that leads to some development. It's like the antithesis of the, you know, the flame or the chameleon, where it's like, ah, we're doing this to set up for something later, and it's like, that doesn't really satisfy me now. For these photographs for Robbie, you are just going around the city and taking pictures, not of landmarks like you did in the previous ones, but of human interest stories. Things Mm -hmm. like a secret bar that's in a hollowed out water container or people playing a game of frisbee across the roofs of two different buildings or seeing the real world fandom of people who are inspired by both versions of spider-man yeah and it's all great and like each spider-man has different comments to say and you hear robbie ruminate on it and it's lovely it's a lovely way of exploring the city of new york after you know yes we're exploring more of it but We've had two games set there, and we're going to have more games set there as well. So it's like, you know, it's a way of making you appreciate the city again. So I really like that. Then we get the Emily May stuff, and this is an extension of what already began with the first game, but mm-hmm. as a, as an expression of this particular plot point with Harry and him therefore going around and... Peter being able to use not his spider powers to do good, but his exceptional brain to Mm. do more lasting good than just beating up bad guys and putting them in jail. That's Mm. an expression of the duality of Peter in this exploration. This is something I got into in the Discord. Sometimes the power and the responsibility is not superpower. Sometimes it's just your ability, the ability that you have that somebody else might not have. And Mm. Peter has always been very smart in addition to just having the powers gifted to him by accident. So getting to do nonviolent missions that hopefully will lead to something better down the road, that's a really good thematic thing going on there. And it's a really inspiring set of missions that mm. like, genuinely have you thinking of these being like, I'm sure that they're oversimplifying things, but it does make you think these would be great things to see scientists and you know people working on. I'm sure there are projects that 
I wouldn't be surprised if some of this was inspired by real projects that are being worked on right now. The way it culminates where there's oh, yes. one last experiment mm. after the main story is done. And it's a, such a tragedy with the Emily May Foundation. The, the foundation is named after the two women who Peter and Harry... Were raised like by. were raised by and inspired by who are sadly no longer with them yeah and... there, there's the overall implication that norman was kind of absent for yeah. harry's life and therefore it was emily his mother that raised him most of the time and of course we already know the arc of peter's story how he was raised by ben and may but then mostly May after Ben passed. The culmination of that where they create that strain of tree that was in the foundation and spreading it around New York. What's the saying? Um, Plant seeds that your children will see. The actual adage is originally, blessed is he who plants trees under whose shade he will never sit. But versions of this saying existed long before and long after this French 1866 quote. That's just so emotionally... mm. Yeah, especially because, like, the crux of the main narrative is that you get to explore this wonderful foundation, and Peter is, like, hesitant to accept a job there because he's always being pulled by his responsibilities as Mm Spider-Man, and you get this really detailed tour that is just lovely and you want to spend you want to work at a place like that and then the hunters tear it up because they follow spider-man and Mm -hmm. an action sequence breaks out and this a place with such a beautiful intention behind it is uprooted and destroyed because craven doesn't know how to create he only knows how to destroy that is the only thing that gives him meaning by the end of the game where like harry is in a coma the foundation is uprooted but peter has now set the mask down and is focusing on just working on the emily may foundation in his garage that's lovely and the fact that harry leaves a recording not knowing if he will be alive by the time this happens because his sickness is returning at that point that he's recording it and he says Knowing you, you'll probably be starting up from scratch, and that's exactly what happened. It shows how well they Mm. know each other, and that, like, even if this dream didn't take... What defines this version of Harry as a character is that his dream, the phrase they say throughout the game is, let's heal the world. Mm. And that sentence is, like, let's, which is us. Like, it's a call to action, because the dream is not just that Harry wants to heal the world, it's that he wants to do it with Peter, he yeah. wants to do it with people he cares about because what better way to spend life? I really like this version of Harry Osborne. Most other interpretations of him tend to be the successful golden child who has done the less not enough for his father, never enough for his father. And his downfall always tends to come from trying to gain Norman's approval, even after death. And those elements are not not here, but they're given less weight, less screen time. Hell, this version of Norman is different, too. The entirety of Norman's actions in the first game is put into contrast when we find out that a lot of the evil he has done was in pursuit of a way to save his wife and son from their illness. First Devil's Breath, and now the symbiote.
He's still a ruthless capitalist industrialist, but the reasons why humanize him. Norman's feelings about Peter are also different, as he mostly likes Peter not for being a son figure that was better than Harry, but because Peter and Harry were so close. The Osbournes are, and have always been, central to any Spider-Man story for various reasons. And even in this iteration, Norman and Harry continue to be a major narrative force in Peter's life. But Insomniac decided to take a different tack with this, where their pursuit of power is not an end to itself, but rather an expression of grief and loss. It's also what makes what is likely an inevitable lead-up to the Green Goblin that much more powerful. No matter what abilities or resources he has available, that is his abiding motivation. And if that means that when he has this big foundation, he can do that, then he'll do that. When he discovers that he can be a superhero and that he can do that with Peter, he'll do that too. And Venom preys on that. The symbiote Mm. uses Emily's voice to sing to yeah, and hear that Tony Todd's Venom. Oh, yes. There was this article Mm -hmm. on The Hollywood Reporter that was talking about the experience of Najee Jeter, the voice of Miles Morales, and the the caption was that Najee Jeter studied sign language in order to bring out new side to Miles Morales. Oh, Uh, lovely. And we're going to talk about Haley in a second here. Mm-hmm. But he also mentioned what it was like when Tony Todd came on board to record the voice of Venom. And his quote was, it was like the president was there. The mental image of Naji, who is himself a healthy 27, but obviously voicing a much younger Miles. And Tony Todd, who is a veteran and almost statesman of the craft of acting and voice acting... Picturing the energy, the two of them bonding in a room in between recording lines. Oh my god, I love this so much! This is the best Venom voice that has ever existed. Like, Mm. Tom Hardy is, it's fun, you know, more power to it. This is that perfect, like, from as soon as I heard that he was cast for it, I thought it was perfect because the Candyman... Like in the original one mm-hmm. is haunting, mm-hmm. horrifying, and seductive. Mm-hmm. Be my victim. And the idea of Venom being a similar energy. Yes, I'm absolutely with you on that. Just a brief thing here. This is also part of the reason why I love the subtext of Harry and Peter potentially having a romantic thing, because there's always been a sort of seductive romance to the symbiote as well. Yeah. That the symbiote loved Peter and hated being torn from him. That was mm. a that was a thing that was actually in the comics itself. And yeah. so the idea that... Both Harry the, and the symbiote, and symbiote feel rejected. Loved, feel rejected, but are also trying to bring him back because they do still love Peter. That added subtext just works really well. Just hearing, like, you know, Norman Osborne just say, like, please, I just want my son. And you just hear Tony Todd say, 
Just give me back my son. We are your son. I played the game with headphones, and yeah. every time I heard it, it just felt like, you know, I was hearing the whole game, and I was in there, and it were just, I wasn't thinking about it. Every time I played it with headphones, and I do recommend it, and Venom's voice and Tony Todd's voice came on, it was like some Senua shit. It felt like he wasn't speaking around me. It was like he was speaking inside me. Mm. Like you heard Tony Todd was just there behind. Over your shoulder, like a shadowy devil. Exactly. It's a fantastic reveal in that MJ sequence where they adapt Peter falling asleep and the symbiote being on autopilot where you are playing as Mary Jane and you are seeing the insane power and it's terrifying. And then she tries to use a sort of resuscitation thing to just shock it off. Wakes Peter up enough for Peter to like be hunched over and say, Oh, yeah, that was terrifying. Yeah. Well, when we talk about MJ moments here, between her going in and trying to rescue Kurt by herself, Mm. and also seeing all of the evidence of all of the Spider-Man villains that Kraven has killed off screen. Fuck. That was a hugely powerful thing. But just like, uh, fuck the people that say it's unreal. Okay, yes, she manages to take down hunters in one go with her taser, whereas it takes several hits from Spider-Man. I don't care about the unrealisticness of it. I, I don't care. She yeah, uses I, a stun thing. Like, yeah, I, I love MJ being proactive. First, with going in and needing to be a hero just like Miles and Peter. This is the yeah. Spider-Family here, even if... Yeah. MJ has no powers. And then the whole thing where she has to chase after Peter as he's being autopiloted by the suit and taking down more hunters along the way, upgrading the gun so it can shoot webs. And then that whole thing where she's fleeing from symbiote Peter. Oh, my God. Uh, Such powerfully, emotionally affecting moments there. It puts into perspective just how much strain MJ is by the time the Scream symbiote takes her over. Like, I genuinely think that the Mary Jane segments are some of my favorite in the game because it recontextualizes everything. You are used to swinging through the city and dispatching hordes of enemies, no problem. And then when you're MJ, you're grounded, you feel the danger. And yeah, you are proactive too. Mechanically, it's really engaging. In the previous game, the stealth segments with Miles and MJ, when you get seen and discovered, it, it's it's an instant game over. Not so in this. Mm. There are mechanics that you can use to sort of 
evade and yeah. come back to, or you can just sprint towards them and just hope you don't get too many darts in you or something. It's so much better. It's not important, the mechanics. Yeah. All they see is exactly what they always see. They yeah. refer to some of these moments as being like Mary Jane suddenly becoming John Wick. But I don't... Fuck off. Yeah, well, this is, this is the thing. I don't think that's a good criticism because yeah. one of the implications of John Wick, first of all, everything takes Mary Jane more effort because she is not superpowered. But mm. it's clear that the interstitial stuff going on is that she took a level in badass training with Silver Sable, which makes fucking sense given mm. who Silver Sable is. But that means that there is a because she has to work so much harder just to take down one person, there's a level of brutality to each encounter where she's a glass cannon. She can only take mm -hmm. like one, maybe two hits. So she's yeah. got to get in there and take down this one opponent. And she can only take on one opponent at a time. If there's more than one, she's kind of fucked. Exactly. All, the, emotionally, all of emotionally, how it feels in the moment that it all works. Yeah, that that's precisely. It. I think it's. I think they're great. The comics in the past have always had a bit of a problem doing anything with Mary Jane, other than her being the hot trophy wife for Peter that supports him and does emotional work for him, and occasionally gets put in jeopardy. I was there in the '80s and '90s where her plot development involved deciding whether or not she starts modeling lingerie, or where she tries to get a small role in a sitcom, where she takes up smoking, or gets kidnapped into a cult, or gets kidnapped by the Parker's rich landlord as a trophy for himself. They started doing things with her, coming to terms with her past and estranged father at one point, but even then, everything is still centered around her relationship with Peter the stress of being Spider-Man's girlfriend or eventually wife. Not only does the game address this by making it front and center part of the plot and her development in it, but she's seeking a role for herself in the world that has nothing to do with how she looks. Which is good, because apparently the hate boys really dislike her updated character model in the game. And the worst part of that detail is the new model is based on the same woman as the first game, Stephanie Tyler Jones, who is in a car crash in between games and needed to have her fucking jaw rebuilt. If there's one thing the post One More Day comics have succeeded with, it's giving Mary Jane her own life. She's owned a nightclub, she's worked for Tony Stark and with Riri Williams. Eventually they went back to making her an actress, which is fine, but feels like a step down. This MJ gets to be unencumbered by all the lore from the comics, and making her an investigative journalist may feel a little Lois Lane, lest we forget that Lois is also a badass, and therefore is an entirely good story option to make Mary Jane proactive in Spidey's world of criminals. There's a moment where in order to get a password, she has to pretend to be a high-ranking member of Craven's goons, so she uses her skills and experience to social engineer a convincing facsimile. I'd play it for you, but since she speaks mostly in Simkarian, it wouldn't do much in an audio-only medium. If people are complaining, oh man, like Mary Jane is like John Wick and it doesn't make any internal sense, 
well, I have something to say about the game's main threat. Like, <laughs> Craven just being like, you know, he's a bit of a Mary Sue. Because it's just <laughs> like, he comes in and it's just like, uh, I can take all this thing and I am able to kill everyone and I have like no explained reason for it. Yes, maybe I drunk a potion, who knows, it's in some of the extended things. But it's like, if you're gonna start throwing shade at MJ for being able to do this thing, when arguably she gets much more justification for why she is as good as she is than Craven ever gets, then fuck off. You say that Craven is a Mary Sue, I'm going to get back to that because I feel like you're not wrong, but I also feel it's load-bearing that he's a Mary Sue. <laughs> yes, okay, I get that a Mary Sue is a very specific thing, and I'm sure that Chris Finnick would get on my case for using the word incorrectly, but give us a break. We were recording live. We'll get into more detail later. But let's get to the rest of the side missions first. Yeah, honestly, there's only really one segment left because... We've we already talked about talked the Brooklyn about... Visions, yes, and we've talked about the local culture. My favorite side mission sort of category in this, and really my only criticism is that, like, I would have, I could have done with even more of this sort of thing. Yes. Was the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man app requests yes. the ones that aren't like the generic crimes that are peppered through the city, and it's the ones where someone comes in and says, like, could you help me with? such and such yeah. and there's like five or six or something of them in the entire game and each one is so so good and it ranges because there's one where there's this blind lady who oh yes thinks the there's a lady. monster in her backyard and it ends up being one of the robot dogs that like the hunters have been using yeah, yeah. and you get to reprogram it and like the way that that is done is Genki just force-fed it a million different YouTube videos of dogs. And as Peter says when you do it, it's like, well, if watching one million videos of dogs doesn't make someone into a good boy, I don't know what will. Oh, yeah. We haven't had much to say about Genki, either in our brief discussion on the Miles Morales game or in our coverage of this game. Unfortunately, that's because there isn't all that much to talk about in terms of his development as a character. He primarily serves as Miles' confidant, and a bit of an oracle for both Miles and now Peter in this new game, assisting them with a lot of technical things, as his specialty is computers and drones. His voice is mostly heard during side quests and a few key points during the main story, and I'm hoping he has some plot focused on him in a future game. <laughs> Not to mention that there's this whole side tangent of it where it's like, oh, for some reason the hunters were trying to kill the dog to begin with and that's what set it off. But then yeah. like the fact that, okay, so now the dog's on your side and it's this big robot dog that's acting like a good little puppy. And, yes. then, and then Peter's like, okay, what do I do with this? Oh, right. The blind lady can't have a normal guide dog because of allergies. Here, blind lady, have this enormous robotic good boy to help you out. I hope she comes back and <laughs> at one point and we just touch in with her and see how her life has been with her big robot dog. Yes. Uh, but, and, and they've done like all these like little cute drawings, which just implies that either Peter just doodled on it for a mm -hmm. bit, or that the local kids just were like petting it and just mm -hmm. doodled on it. 
Yeah, it's a great thing. I also think there's some sort of paperwork issue that she was contending with. So it's a way of just bypassing the bureaucracy to be able to help this lady. Uh, It's lovely. Then you have the Haley mission. Oh, God, the Haley mission. Okay, so I really like Stephanie Sterling's output. I find it frustrating that Steph Sterling was annoyed by this side quest. And of course, I don't actually want to, like, invalidate the experience of another creator. Having talked about this game and analyzed what it is that I like about it, it's clear that several of the games I play aren't necessarily for the gameplay. But a lot of people would disagree, and that doesn't make either of our opinions wrong. Here is a brief excerpt from a YouTube creator called Nakey Jakey, taken from a video criticizing Naughty Dog's game design. Among my favorite games ever, there's very few that I hold in high regard for their story or characters. Typically, I am like 100% motivated by gameplay because I have a special medical condition that me and my brother Isaac refer to as Goopy Goblin Gamer Brain. Goopy Goblin Gamer Brain basically means that you have little to no patience for anything that isn't fun or engaging second-to-second gameplay. Unskippable cutscenes, long shitty tutorials, limited movement, trailing missions, slow-ass scripted prestige gameplay where you have to suffer through a boring-ass stealth section as a character that isn't Spider-Man. You know, the type of monotonous shit that more and more games have that take away control from the player just to service some mediocre-ass story while you just sit there being like, okay, but can we get back to the fun part where I blow up cars? That's Goopy Goblin Gamer Brain. And because of that, a lot of my favorite games, you know, Breath of the Wild, Mario 64, Bloodborne, Skate 2, yeah, technically all these games have some sort of story. Uh, Paul Rodriguez is dying of a rare skateboard-related illness, and the only cure... So you gotta go do a bunch of pop shove-its. Really, they just have motivators. You know, a thing to push you along to get you to experience whatever the gameplay mechanics have to offer. For Breath of the Wild, the initial motivator is as simple as beat Ganon. And even though the game barely has a story at all, that's enough to get you going. Because then the game is frequently filled with all these little motivators like, Hey, don't you want to climb on some stuff and find cool new outfits? Hey, don't you want to shoot guys in slow motion? Hey, don't you want to start some grass on fire? And the goopy goblin in my brain is like, Hell yeah! But behind all that shit, there's still always the initial motivator of beat Ganons. You never stop and ask yourself, what's the point while exploring and lose immersion because almost everything you do is building toward that central goal of beat Ganon. Even in a game like Tony Stocks, the motivator is as simple as, hey, do this list of random ass things in two minute increments because fuck you, we said so. But you never stop and ask, hey, why am I picking up glowing skate letters? Because the gameplay is so ridiculously fun. But with The Last of Us, unlike my other favorite games, the characters and storytelling actually are the main motivators for my goblin-ass brain. Don't get me wrong, the gameplay is good and sometimes even great, but none of the Uncharted or Last of Us games have extremely engaging, deep gameplay systems that the devs can rely on for hours and hours and hours of countless entertainment like Mario 64 or Halo 3 or Phantom Pain. Like, there is a long laundry list of games that do shooting and platforming and stealth and melee combat and survival horror and puzzles much better and have much more interesting and rewarding gameplay than Uncharted or The Last of Us. At least I think. But because Naughty Dog is typically so good at pacing out those bombastic 
putting in your pants action set pieces with quiet moments and puzzles and now they're gonna talk and climb for a while and now we're in the snow Ooh, brr. and now we're in Madagascar Ooh, it's hot here and now we're on a train Wow! and now we're falling out of a plane ah! and now Elena's here yes I like her she's so cool and funny and oh she's my mom now she's my mom now yes and Drake is my dad yes yes they kind of Chris Angel mind freak your ass into thinking that the core gameplay throughout the whole game is deeper than it actually is when in reality I think they're just really good at playing to all of their different strengths equally and pacing them out in a very cinematic way that nobody else seems to really be able to perfectly replicate like only Naughty Dog makes Naughty Dog games for better or worse also the Uncharted 4 uh, Drake and Elena being my mom and dad bit was the one that spoils the end of Uncharted 4 leave a comment in the comments down below if you don't think it was worth it also the reason I said for better or worse about 10 seconds ago is because without the first Uncharted a lot of these AAA cinematic third-person action games that take very clear and heavy inspiration from movies and TV for their storytelling methods and presentation they might not exist at least not in the same way because while I enjoy a lot of these games that have taken very clear inspiration from Naughty Dog, unfortunately, they also have taken things from Naughty Dog games that the goop-covered goblin in my brain dislikes on Pinterest. Like mindless quick time event button prompts, or mindless fake climbing, or stupid, ooh, now you can't run and you're forced to slowly walk because we want to show you how pretty our game is for the billionth time. And I'm just like, yeah, fuck it, sure, I don't care. Just let me use the grappling hook again, please, for the love of God. While I don't want to critique Jakey further, I do take a bit of umbrage with the idea that no one besides Naughty Dog makes games with well-written stories and a good balancing of story and gameplay. Some of the examples he has up on screen in this video included the new Tomb Raider games, the new God of War games, and of course, I would argue that Insomniac has been hitting it out of the park with their own Spider-Man games. That's the entire point of doing this set of shows on Spider-Man Proving Grounds, as well as a potential future show on Dad of Boy 1 and 2. I don't have Goopy Goblin Gamer Brain, which means that I like the cinematic bits and the slower bits that he complains about in these other games. This is all just to show that I've at least considered their opinions, even if I don't agree, but I think that's also why I got Toby on to talk about this game, to give a counter-voice to some of these arguments. So once again, let's get back to it. I think this side quest is kind of huge because first of all, there was someone at one, some point on the Discord that was saying, oh, you got a side quest where you get on someone's case because of graffiti? That doesn't seem like something Miles would do. But it immediately shows you, okay, there is a graffiti thing going on there. But first of all, Haley has already come in to address it because she's a street artist. And so therefore, she's able to paint over it with something beautiful that actually makes it, oh, the traffic to this local community stand is now increased because everyone loves the artwork next to it. But then we get to step into Haley's shoes. First of all, seeing the world from Haley's standpoint, from a person who is mute and deaf and how they're interacting with the world. And so now all the sounds are muted and she seems to react to the world in emojis. And there's this great moment where you get to get a cat's Spider-Man toy back. So you get to see the cat playing with it later on. But also the culmination of that story was like, oh, no, the original graffiti artist, they weren't trying to hurt anybody. 
they were just disappointed with their own artwork and kept crossing it out with spray paint. And so Haley gets to overcome a communication barrier. Hmm, I wonder if we enjoy seeing people overcome communication barriers. I wonder why. <laughs> and encourage this fellow artist, invite them into her artist community. This is something that Haley resolves on her own, and Miles just to get to be witness to it. I love it. I love her. Yeah, uh, I want more of her, please. Yes, and we are definitely getting more of her, which is great. By the time this episode releases, the MCU TV show Echo will have come out, which is a story that delves heavily into the protagonist's Native American background, but also into her lived experience as a deaf woman. Sadly, I feel like the show could have done more with this premise, but at the very least, it was nice to see how many people in Maya Lopez's community knew ASL, the cast specifically learning it in order to socialize and communicate with actress Alakwa Cox better. Like, I think there's at least one or two that I'm no, forgetting, no, no, but no, there no, are no, no. two of absolute significant notes. Yes. And you can play as either Peter or Miles. I just inadvertently, because I didn't really know what I was walking into, except mm -hmm. for one of them, I was Peter for both of them. Mm -hmm. And I have no doubt that if you were Miles, that it would be just as emotionally affecting. The mm -hmm. first one is when you are looking for a grandfather who has Alzheimer's. Mm. You interact with the granddaughter who is she's a growing woman uh she worries that she's been taking him for granted and wants to make more time and for peter like interacting for either of the spider-men they get that mm -hmm. and then you just follow the clues follow the traces and at each point you get an indication that this is important to the grandfather because of letters indicating a significant connection in their mm -hmm. past. And when you finally find them, you phone the granddaughter and let them know where you are. And she asks you to sit with him until yes. she gets there. And you do. You just sit down on the bench. And what proceeds is just four minutes of nothing, just you sitting with someone and listening to them, responding to their conversation, not just humoring them, you are actively engaged with it. This man talks about his experience of proposing to this woman that he married and she's no longer with him. You ever been in love, Spider-Man? Yeah, yeah, I have. It's beautiful. Nothing more beautiful. Can I tell you something, Spider-Man? I know I'm fading. It's scary as hell. Thought I'd be ready, but nothing gets you ready. Nothing. When I'm here, it's like she is too. Like I'm living it all over again. All nervous and sweating and whatnot. Then I look into her eyes and it's like I'm home. I was so nervous that day, Spider-Man. Almost didn't even ask. It's like I blinked and she's gone. I'm sorry. God. That hits me now, uh, but... Yeah, uh... well, so... This quiet moment 
underscores one of the running themes of this game is that this man knows that his story is almost over. So he took a moment to try and relive the best parts of it before it's done. And we don't realize how important this interaction is until we see how Peter's story culminates towards the mm. end of the of the game where Peter has to move on. We as the audience have to move on. We have to be able to go on to tell new stories with Miles. Mm. Obviously, there is the implication that Peter may come back for a third game, but Miles is going to be the star of the show from here on. So it's like mm -hmm. Peter's involvement in whatever comes forward is not going to go away, but he's not going to be the leading person at this point. We need, we as an audience need to move on. We can't stay stuck in the past. Mm. Like Craven would have us do, but we're going to get to that in yeah. a second. And there's uh, one thing I really liked about uh, when you talk to this guy as Peter, he asks the grandfather when he finds out that this is where he proposed, it's like, can I ask you something? How did you know that you were ready? Or how did you know how to do it? And it indicates that Peter is thinking of how does he know that he's ready? How can he commit to MJ? Like these thoughts have been on his mind. But that's not the most emotionally devastating quest in mm. the game because Howard, yeah. our yes. resident bird lover and protector, who already had an emotional culmination to his story in the first game, that this is his way of honoring and keeping his wife's memory alive, puts in a request. And as soon as it was Howard, I knew I had to be Peter because that's the person he's interacted with. There were Howard missions with Miles in the Miles Morales game. Oh, that's right. Yeah. But um, no, I you go there and you sit with Howard and it's similar to the Alzheimer's mission where you are sitting down and just talking with him. And there's something a little off. There's aspects of Howard's speech which feel like there is some laden meaning to it. And you realize that he is taking insights and not necessarily responding to some of your questions, really, in a forthcoming way. He is more preoccupied with taking in what you see around them and appreciating the beauty of what you have in front of you. And he asks you to help him free his birds. Give them uh, a new home. He wants to. Yeah. They've lived in New York all of their short lives, I guess. Mm. It's like, I want you to find them a new home, a new place where they can roost. I want them to see something different. Yeah. So you go on this extended glide where he takes them all the way out to Queens to some nice wooded area. As a song plays. One of the few times in the game that licensed music with lyrics plays. A song called Seabird by 70s pop duo the Alessi Brothers. As, you're, as these birds are following you out to Queens and you find them a new roosting spot and then... Peter or Miles tries to call back to Howard and say, I, I did what you asked, and there's no response. Then you come back to the dock, 
and there's an ambulance. And he had a heart attack while you were away. And he knew that this was coming. So you performed a deathbed wish for him. Just as Howard taking care of the flock of pigeons originally was the deathbed wish of his wife. That killed me. It's killing me now. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't think that I would be this emotionally affected by a character that was the focus of a frustrating minigame from the first two games. I know. You just speak to the paramedics who are there and... Oh no. Howard? Looks like natural causes. Oh hey, Spider-Man. Hey, sorry. Friend of mine. Take all the time you need. If it helps, um... It looked like he was at peace. He was. He's finally on that adventure with his wife. Don't worry, Howard. The flock is free. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, 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 you see what I mean? That this game has some yeah. of the biggest emotional hits and yeah. triumphs of the entire series. Yeah. All right. I think we need to temper this. I think we've actually covered everything in the game except for Craven. To be honest, that's not entirely true. We covered a lot, but we utterly forgot to say anything about the Black Cat side mission, where MJ sends Miles after her specifically because Peter has such a blind spot in dealing with her. And I'm sure there's other moments that we could get into, like the fates of some of the villains Craven killed, or how Insomniac weaves Kurt Connors into the story. But we've already been talking so long, and the game's treatment of Craven is a major sticking point. So as Toby said at the time, no more stalling. Craven is kind of a frustrating thing for me, because he is, like, first of all, the person doing the voice for him, excellent. Voiced by a man named Jim Peary, who is not an actor I'm familiar with. His filmography is mostly small, non-recurring character roles, in a lot of TV shows since the 90s, as well as minor voice acting roles for a lot of video games and a few animated features. The larger roles you might have heard of would be the Traveler Birgir in God of War Ragnarok, Angelo Bronte in Red Dead Redemption 2, the villain Race in Dying Light, and Alador Blight in The Owl House. The combination of his vocal delivery and the supreme consideration, and the way he takes everything in. You know this beast. His name is Kurt Connors. He's a good man. There are no good men. With that and the musical theme for him, which makes him seem like this 
unstoppable force of nature. They do a lot to make sure that he feels like this imposing threat. You have hunted me. This is good. Let's see if you have the strength to finish what you started. We said before it's kind of like they don't really ever give any explanation other than he has honed his entire life into the art of the hunt but he's this giant of a man and there's a moment where spider-man throws like a punch and he just catches it and it's just nothing to him and he takes scorpion's sting mm-hmm. and it does nothing to him and he just takes the stinger and kills scorpion with it it's just like this stuff of fuck you. He's craven. He, that's all the reason why he's able to be this. Okay, like, not not necessarily because there is also all of this setup. You called him a Mary Sue a moment ago. Sure, he's Batman. Sure, because sure, because he does all of this research on all of his targets. The reason he's able to take Scorpion Sting is that he's already dosed himself with the anti venom, so Scorpion's poison doesn't affect him. Granted, that doesn't change the fact that Scorpion Stinger is this massive blade, and he shrugs off being stabbed, too, but what can you do? In order to make Craven a proper threat, there's a lot of no-selling going on on the part of the game, making him able to take down long-term Spider-Man opponents relatively easily. Okay. And then, and then he also takes all of their technology after the fact, and uses that to upgrade himself and to upgrade all of his people. The reason the word Mary Sue comes up so much in modern discourse is that people with bad faith arguments use it to disparage heroes they don't like, usually women, hence the gender trope. But as any research into the trope would bear out, a Mary Sue is a very specific thing. Most often used in fan fiction, it's the insertion of a character by the author, into an established media franchise that is incredibly competent, is well-loved by the main cast, and is unrealistically free of weaknesses or character flaws. Aimed most often at the new Jedi hero Rey from the recent Star Wars sequel trilogy, this definition focuses only on the fact that she's this woman that comes out of nowhere with a strong level of personal competence and picks up using the Force relatively quickly. Overlooking that, well, she's the hero. That's normal. 
for a hero to be good at what they do. On top of that, the movies are officially canon stories. Therefore, this isn't about a single author writing a self-insert character to hog screen time. She is integral to the story of Star Wars going forward, one of the next generation of heroes. Likewise, Craven is not a Mary Sue by the strictest definition. He's a villain, for one thing, and they are an established character, not an OC. He has posed a threat to Spider-Man in various media before this, and there are various explanations as to why this is possible. Insomniac has made a plausible explanation as to why he is dangerous enough to set the story of Spider-Man Proving Ground going, but it does have to keep him at a certain level of invincibility throughout, which is why he has strong Batman vibes of being very prepared and very resilient throughout Act 1 and Act 2 of the story. This is part of the reason the term came up earlier, but let's get back to our recorded discussion. I'll still get into why I think it works thematically, but yeah. keep going and, with your... And, your and I mean, even his whole thing about the sort of the technology, it's sort of confusing because there are moments of this where it's sort of like he wants the raw, visceral thrill of just being on the battlefield and dying a warrior's death. Long live my friend of a perfect death. Drenched in fire and blood. Will you give it to me? basically gray fox in metal gear solid where he's like yes hurt me more because his whole thing is he is this like russian oligarch who has created this empire and he cultivates this philosophy his family philosophy before him is that like in order for the world to prosper the strong must always be kind of instigating new growth by challenging things and upsetting the natural order and Kudos to Craven, that's exactly what he's doing. I find this description amusing, not because it's wrong, but because the idea of a villain being someone that disrupts the status quo is something I have heard a lot of recently. Some of the best villains, like Killmonger, are based around said disruption. A recent book by John Scalzi called Starter Villain is built around this idea of a host of rich people trying to get richer by causing disruptions to the worlds of finance and commerce, while never challenging the idea of capitalism itself, because that is the basis for their power. Hell, financial disruption of the status quo has been a real-world thing for many years now, and all you have to do is watch any Dan Olson video to get a sense of people trying to do this. Rich people trying to make fetch happen with cryptocurrency and AI, grifters like in his Contrepreneurs video, or victims trying to become grifters themselves in his recent analysis on the GameStop fiasco. And at the same time, we have boneheads like Miles Braun from Glass Onion. 
You start with something small. You break a norm or an idea or a convention, some little business model. But you go with things that people are kind of tired of anyway. Everybody gets excited because you're busting up something that everyone wanted broken in the first place. That's the infraction point. That's the place where you have to look within yourself and ask, am I the kind of person who will keep going? Will you break more things? Break bigger things? Are you willing to break the thing that nobody wants you to break? Because at that point, people are not gonna be on your side. They're gonna call you crazy. They're gonna say you're a bully. They're gonna tell you to stop. Even your partner will say, you need to stop. Because as it turns out, nobody wants you to break the system itself. But that is what true disruption is. And that is what unites all of us. We all got to that line and crossed it. If you haven't seen the movie yet, do yourself a favor and watch it. I can't say more because I don't want to spoil the twist. He comes onto the scene and he's basically that thing in Captain Marvel where he's just going like, debate me! I think what frustrates me is that he's this whole like sort of code of conduct that he is dying and because he knows the end is coming, he does not want to die on the hospital bed. He wants to fight on the battleground. And it's like, Okay, so you know you've got this terminal illness. Doesn't seem to be holding you back. Like the entire game is setting him up as this mm. absolute beast, and nothing about his physical demeanor shows any sign. Like they keep saying that as you go on, but the game never does anything to kind of back that up in yeah. any way. Especially the fact that like the person who takes Maybe. him out is Harry as Venom, someone who was also contending with an illness. Yeah. And like, if they had done more with that, then I think that there's more to that sort of mirroring of one another. But like, it, I just never really buy that thing of it. And that reaction to it of, I'm going to fight an honorable death and everything like that. What's honorable about going somewhere else and just demanding that everyone subscribe to your own philosophy of, you know, I'm going to completely upend and fuck over your life just for my own vindication. I don't want to die this particular death and I don't care how many people I will kill and ruin the lives of and demand that they meet and reflect my will of what the world has to be. As I'm responding to this in the edit, I don't want to step too much on Toby's frustration and delegitimize it. Because I do think he has an overall point, that the game does a poor job of characterizing Sergei Kravenov as a person. The game also doesn't see this as a problem, because the story isn't about Craven. He's just a plot device, a means to an end, unlike how Martin Lee was as the primary antagonist in the first part of Spider-Man Big Apple, and how the Tinkerer was in the Miles Morales game. But what Toby is describing here as to why he dislikes Craven sounds like the oligarch just suffers from wealthy person privilege, which is sadly very normal. It's the same as Elon Musk and Donald Trump. Craven even has his own fan base, just like Cassidy does in the game. But even if there weren't people that loved him because of his supposed philosophy, they would still follow him because of his wealth and power. 
And again, that might not be satisfying narratively, but it's not out of the realm of possibility. And the real world backs that up. People like Craven exist. He talks about how he wants to be part of some chain. Like, he wants to be the thing that paves the way for the next big predator. And granted, the the boss fight between him and Venom is quite visceral and impactful, especially because Venom literally just bites his head off and they don't really <laughs> sort of flinch from that. He frustrates me because it's this entirely selfish philosophy. And here's the thing. He's the bad guy. Like, it's okay for bad guys to have villainous and nonsensical things. My father was a relentlessly self-improving boulangerie owner from Belgium with low-grade narcolepsy and a penchant for buggery. My mother was a 15-year-old French prostitute named Chloe with webbed feet. My father would womanize, he would drink, he would make outrageous claims like he invented the question mark. Sometimes he would accuse chestnuts of being lazy, the sort of general malaise that only the genius possess and the insane lament. My childhood was typical. Summers in Rangoon, luge lessons. In the spring, we'd make meat helmets. When I was insolent, I was placed in a burlap bag and beaten with reeds. Pretty standard, really. At the age of 12, I received my first scribe. At the age of 14, as a roastery named Vilma, ritualistically shaved my testicles. At the age of 18, I went off to evil medical school. At the age of 25, I took up tap dancing. But my problem is that the game sets him up as this sort of honourable thing, with the sort of same sort of feeling of the people who would say, oh, Thanos was right, or something like mm. that. And it's like, no, like this guy is an asshole. This works for me because mm -hmm. I, I don't remember how significant it was in the comic. I think that Sergei Kravinov came from a noble family. His origin story, as written back in 1964, is that Craven's father was an aristocrat that flourished under the reign of Tsar Nicholas II, but fled to American soil in order to escape the February Revolution in 1917. The implication there is that Craven is rich, but from old money, rather than having a stable source of growing income like most modern billionaires. So he has some level of privilege and prestige, but not on the same level as what we see in the game. Sergei is a rich oligarch in this, and that means that everything he does is about rich guy privilege. Yes. This is the problem with my editing process. I can't remember if the idea I have during the edit is one that I came up with during the recording, unless I go forward, and I want to set my ideas down before I forget them. I'm leaving in my earlier editorial because I get into more detail there, but I also want to add that when you're a rich person, your values don't have to make coherent sense. The Craven in the main comic line is probably far more honorable, because he's been given mostly consistent character development there. But here, he doesn't need to be as honorable as he claims he is. Who's going to call him on it? He has too much power to make calling him a hypocrite stick at all. And so therefore, thematically, that works for me. But the other way Craven works for me in this is that he is a stand-in for Marvel 
capitalism. Mm -hmm. As I'm going to get into in my essay at the end, Peter Spider-Man has suffered from the fact that they got to keep selling more Spider-Man stories. They got to keep selling more Spider-Man comics. And that means that they keep on doing things to try and retell old stories, which means that progress cannot happen. Mm. And that's part of the reason why I stopped reading Spider-Man a couple of times over the years. But here, the Spider-Man 2 game is daring to shake up the status quo and leave things markedly different at the end by having Miles take over and Peter set the mask aside for a while. Some of the things I'm about to get into may sound a little contradictory, because even as I assert that Craven represents an idea in the business of making comics, Insomniac also uses him to indicate that they're clearly trying to do their own thing without being beholden to keeping the story going indefinitely. So just bear with me while I try to explain. One of the things that Stephanie Sterling complained about at one point was that there wasn't enough variety of boss fights for this game. But here's the thing. I don't want more boss fights in Spider-Man. I think that fewer boss fights, but more emotionally impactful ones, the one between Peter and Craven, as Craven is goading Peter to kill him, the one mm. between Miles and Peter, the one between Peter and MJ, the one between Peter and Miles and Harry at the end, hell, the boss fight between Martin Lee and Miles. Every single boss fight in the game has weighty emotional impact mm. as opposed to some of the ones from the previous game, which is like, oh, Peter's got to take down Vulture. Oh, Peter's got to take down Rhino. Oh, Peter's sure. got to take down Scorpion, mm. whatever. And each of them may have been different as he had to do different things in order to defeat them. But there was no story impact. It was just like, okay, now we're getting into a new Elden Ring boss fight. Fine. Mm. Uh, whatever. I, it doesn't mm. matter. Spider-Man the Big Apple. For those not in the know, that's the unofficial name that School of Movies developed for the first Insomniac game. Has 12 different bosses, including the DLC. Each usually with their own tricks to beating them. Much like your average Dark Souls game. And to a certain extent, that's fine. Spider-Man has a big rogues gallery, and the idea of the Sinister Six, where Spidey has to take down more than one villain at a time as they work against him, that's an idea with mimetic weight. That doesn't mean that every Spider-Man game has to be like that. The fact that Insomniac isn't afraid of switching things up so there's less complex gameplay and more narrative-focused play, that kind of appeals to me. It makes every conflict more memorable, not to mention highlighting Spider-Man's relationship with the person every time he fights. Indeed, whether we're talking about Peter or Miles, almost all of the major fights in the game are helping to support the game's core themes, and are not just there to give more gameplay. Having said that, I also took a moment to count the number of boss battles in Spider-Man Proving Ground. And there aren't that much fewer. Yes, you have to fight Kraven as multiple different characters, as well as fight Venom as multiple different characters. But if you count the multiple Mysterio fights as one boss, that's still nine different fights. And with the exception of Mr. Negative, all of them are new opponents, not ones from the first game. But whatever, 
the complaint really isn't what I'm most interested in. What I do want to get into is that most of these fights wouldn't happen at all if Craven hadn't started doing his thing. And I know, yes, inciting event, setting the plot off, but this is where I wanted to introduce the idea of Craven as being the representative of the Marvel Comics machine, trying to keep Spidey's story going. Sure, Marvel can always introduce new villains, but that doesn't always work out. Sometimes you get a fan favorite like Mr. Negative, and sometimes you get someone just totally annoying like Screwball. That means that just like Peter himself isn't allowed to grow and evolve, a lot of the time his opponents aren't either. You can't say keep them redeemed, because eventually some new writer will want to make them a villain again, robbing the impact of powerful stories. The same is true of killing them. Norman Osborn had been dead for over 20 years, since the 70s, and they brought him back. Craven himself had died in the comics in 1987, as part of one of the most memorable Spider-Man stories, Craven's Last Hunt, and then was resurrected 23 years later, thanks to the actions of his family. Hey, maybe that's why the game kills the Cravenoffs off. No ritual sacrifice to bring Sergei back. So from a certain point of view, here Peter is just trying to hold down a job and keep the mortgage paid for May's old house, when one day, Sandman goes on a rampage. Just the old Parker luck, right? Except, it's more than that. Craven frees a bunch of Spidey's old foes in order to pit himself against them in his quest for glory and hype up his own power. And when that doesn't work out, he goes searching for other bad guys that have gone straight, like Tombstone, Sandman, and even poor Kurt Connors, who in this world really only became the lizard on accident, thanks to the unwise choice of working for Norman Osborn. It's like Craven himself is saying, Nah dog, you can't have a normal life. You gotta fight for my amusement. Fight for the entertainment of your fans and all the people that paid $70 for your video game. The fact that Craven is more significant as a metaphor than as a character in this game just works thematically for this yeah. because the game isn't really about Peter's relationship with Craven. It's mm. about Peter's relationship with Harry and therefore Craven is just the force of nature that makes it so these friends, Harry, MJ, Miles, Peter, all have to fight each other. Yeah, And I think that that is what it's going for and it's successful at that really like my whole thing with craven it's just frustrating because you know for multiple things uh, i think just him conceptually frustrates me as a character Mm. as a force of nature and as a sort of representation of things that are like more important than him because ultimately he gets murked and like (laughs) forgotten and everyone is just like all right, moving on. Craven getting his head bit off. I was like, oh no. Anyway, uh, yes, like, exactly. uh, and which I think is almost hilarious considering he wanted his death to be like the herald of something. And it's just like, yeah. uh, and it's just like, oh, fuck off, man. We, you and, tire and, us. 
And the right. entire Craven family is dead now, so their impact will die with them. And that's the thing that I'm like so perplexed by because you know the conversation between Craven and his wife, like you know, that seems to, like there was some affection there, but he has no reaction to the news that the entire line is dead or something like that. And it could have been a succession thing where it's like he never wanted any of them to succeed him. His line will die with him, and he's fine with that. Yeah, but like the fact that's a big flavor to go mm. with, and the fact that it's such an anti-climax thing means that they introduce this big idea and they do nothing with it, and it just raises further questions about like what his philosophy is. Because I think I was always waiting for there to be something more to him, but mm. then there never is. Like it's just. Okay. You yeah. really you really are as blunt as you appear to be. He insists upon himself. And yeah. in real life and in fiction, those people frustrate me. Honestly, now my earlier comment comparing this craven to Trump makes too much sense. Because what Toby is talking about here is honestly the way we feel about Orange Face. He's not compelling as a person, he's selfish and dangerous and not even that interesting to talk about. We just want him to go. However, I can't say that he'll be forgotten, per se. He left a lasting impact on our heroes, and in some ways on the city itself. That's part of what the ending reveals. And in the end, he got what he wanted. He's John Doe in Seven. And in some ways, that makes this story similar to Craven's Last Hunt, but that story was about Sergei, about his honor and his trauma and his obsession and fear. And maybe in the end, Insomniac decided they couldn't top that story, and so didn't try. I like your commentary that that Craven is the debate me guy because I that that that's, does that's what he is entertain uh, me. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, Craven, uh, Craven's like unfortunately such a big flavor of this because the main enemy forces the hunters. Yeah, and uh, the way I phrased it is that I'm glad that Craven wasn't the ultimate destination of this narrative. That he was basically just the path we took to get to yeah everything with Harry and Venom. I think we've already sort of touched on the ending a little bit. I really liked it. I really liked the idea of. Peter passing the torch to Miles. Mm -hmm. I like the idea of Peter taking time off in order to repair his various relationships. Mm -hmm. uh, I really like MJ starting a podcast. Again, I wonder why. I wonder why, yeah. <laughs> but also that whole experience... We should, with we should like, have a guest on ours. But the whole experience with like the ending being a reflection on everything that we've all been through because of the post-pandemic era and everything mm -hmm. like that, that mm -hmm. was like, oh, yeah, no, this doesn't emotionally affect me at all. For the last few years, tragedy has tried to tear the city apart. But we somehow kept going. We battled sickness, evil, cataclysm. We are tired, anxious, stressed, numb but we have never lost hope the city needs to heal we're all ready to return to normal but 
What is normal? What if it no longer exists? Over the last half hour, I've talked about how these events have changed me. But what about you? In this ongoing series, I will be talking with people throughout the city, exploring our new behaviors, new routines, new thoughts and feelings. I hope you'll join me on this journey. This has been Mary Jane Watson, and you're listening to The New Normal. Thumbs up, no notes. Yeah, uh, it's, no, it's great. And, you know, I think that uh, them setting up in the sort of after credit scenes that Otto was coming back and mm-hmm. that he, I think Norman and him will probably work together. But like Otto was like not exactly in what we see here. He didn't really accept it. He just basically like he asked for the identity of the Spider-Man and Otto doesn't seem to give it up, at least for now. And when he finds out, it's like, I want them because, like, my boy is comatose. And I was just like, good. <laughs> you, you should suffer like I have suffered. Yes. Yeah. But the significance of that is almost not even that. Because, like, we know that Norman's going to be a thing. We know there'll be a villain. The significance of that scene is when Norman asks him, what are you writing? And Otto says something which, in terms of, like, the details of what it is, means really, like, nothing but in terms of the meta statement of it it means everything is the final chapter mm-hmm. yeah and it, that's it, it, how we know that insomniac are working to an ending yes yes yeah. very important stories mm-hmm. have to end they're mm-hmm. doing a wolverine game now they might do other games down the pike but i like the idea that they have an end point in sight yeah the way i could see this just sort of like the arc of it forward because after that you see that rio is dating someone who she wants miles to meet but uh he's kind of just too busy being spider-man but then they have a chance to finally meet at the end and it seems that this is the father of cindy moon who yes. everyone who sees that scene does a quick google to see who that is and oh hey looks like we're going to bring in Silk. Um, yes. And that, that is intriguing because I feel like her introduction at the beginning, and by that I mean when she was first introduced in the comics, which is complicated, and there's this whole thing be like, oh, her pheromones affect Peter, so there's a romantic thing going on there. I feel like Silk is... We can is, do without that. It, yeah. It'll be fine. Silk is maybe a little bit problematic in the comics, But considering that everything that Insomniac has done to do their own spin on existing characters, I'm very curious because it would be so easy for them to do Gwen Stacy. The fact that they're pivoting to Silk instead. Yes, exactly. I think that's great because, Mm -hmm. like, you have an opportunity here to kind of cement new characters in the public consciousness. And more diverse characters because, as much as we love Gwen Stacy, she's still a white girl. Yeah. Silk, Cindy Moon is a person of color. That's more interesting. The idea that that the third game might be the Miles Morales and Cindy Moon game. Yeah, and that there may be... Or or no, hold on a second. We're forgetting something. It's Spider-Man 3. Three spider people. Peter, (laughs) Miles, and Cindy.
there you go. It could be that. I mean, like the my sort of roadmap that I see this was possibly heading down is DLC for this, and it will like sort of be. Ooh, will the DLC help set up Cindy as a future protagonist? That I think is... so. That's yeah. my. That's what I think will happen. Is that like you have uh, Carl? It will be let there be carnage, and it will be all to do with that. Uh, we'll get the symbiote stuff wrapped up because I think that it's better to kind of neatly put a bow on that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we don't will... need more carnage. There's been no. too much carnage already. No, 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 no. And, the, and also I think we will probably have a bit more of a final resolution to Yuri's arc. Mm. I think that Cindy Moon will be introduced and set up as a character. And yeah, we'll see how things go with that. Then... As a potential in-between game, because it worked well last time, small-scale Silk mm, game? Maybe. Why not keep using the engine that worked so well with Miles Morales? Yeah, no, it, I, I, like, I think it's a decent formula. And then Spider-Man 3, which at that point will be Spider-Man 5, I think, <laughs> um, like, yeah. is where it all ends. And... Uh, Honestly, like they could do none of that and they just do a Spider-Man 3 and they're done. They've already given me some of the best Spider-Man stories with these. I thought that this game was great. And in talking with you, I appreciate it even more. That's as, that's as good as a uh, result as anything. And I hope that uh, other people get more out of it as a result of us talking. Of course, by now, many of you may have learned that Insomniac Games was hacked. And it looks like what was actually in the pipeline was a Venom spin-off. Which, okay, I can see why they would do that. Miles Morales has some pop culture recognition thanks to being made a long while back. Not to mention that the Sony animated movies have done huge. Silk, in comparison, is known by almost no one but the most devoted fans. And likewise, Venom as a character has a huge fan base if the Sony live-action movies are any barometer. I don't know how they would do a Venom game after the end of this one, although we already know that there was one errant symbiote that Cletus picked up. Maybe this is how we get Eddie Brock Venom rather than Harry Venom? Based on articles that have been written post-leak, it sounds like Carnage will be set up as the main villain for Venom and that there would be additional spider heroes featuring in the game. So, we could get Miles and Silk after all. One more brief point before I get to my essay and I get to share with you the deep well of feelings that this uh, brought up in me because of my past with Spider-Man. Everyone was complaining about Miles' suit at the end of the game. I haven't looked at the complaints, although I think it has something to do with First of all, the fact that it is associated with a, an Adidas branding thing. There are apparently Miles Morales shoes with that coloring that the suit is supposed to tie into. What was your reaction to the suit? I thought it wasn't particularly great, but like it was kind of a, like a non-factor. I think it's become more of a like sticking point than it really needs to be because mm -hmm. it's sort of like, as a story beat, it's a bit unearned and a bit like, you know... Mm. Like, Miles had already made his suit that was mm -hmm. his own thing. Arguably, this suit just kind of brings it more in line with Peter's colors a bit, but with the red and blue. So, so that was a bit of a weird justification for it. 
I think it's a perfectly fine design. And I like the idea of actually having his hair be something that is a bit more visible. There are uh, people that didn't like that part of it, I guess, because, oh, it makes it easier to identify him. And I'm just like, fuck off. No. That's, that, that's nitpicking this is for beyond the like, you know, yeah. the, We're already talking about superheroes. Don't, don't, yeah. don't bring too much realism I, into I this. I think it was more just the execution of it, is that it looks like a bit weird because it just sort of looks like Miles just sort of did like a clean slice of like a Spider-Man mask, and it mm-hmm. just looks a bit boxy. Ah, I think okay. a, a better... Let me just see if I've got the name of it right, but it's one of the like sort of special edition extra suits. One of Miles's extra suits is called the Red Spectre suit, and I think I that one... I don't one, remember if I saw that one. Okay. I'll, yeah, I'll, that let me one look it has, up. I think, a much better like execution of the concept of just having some of his hair pop in uh, it uses a hood i think oh, it looks okay, i see yeah well okay so the hood with miles does have some important thematic resonance considering into the spider-verse and i think someone did a remap of the evolved suit that specifically has the hood instead which does look very good and yeah, I know, if his hair is exposed, then someone can grab it in a fight. And honestly, the same thing with a hood, where it could be used to choke Miles. But once again, I feel like realism has a time and place. And as funny as the no capes line is from The Incredibles, how about we just let our heroes have some fun expressing themselves without being so judgy, huh? Here's the reason why I like um, Miles's suit. First of all, you're right, they could have signposted it better as to why he has a new suit. But the reason why I accepted it is because it is a part of Miles's actualization. Because he had one in Miles Morales when he made his own suit, but he's been going through his own character arc, and he has a new suit right after coming to terms with the hate that he's been carrying around for Martin Lee. Hmm. So the new suit is an expression of that. The blue accents are suggestive of his unique electrical powers, where the original Miles Morales suit was in some ways just a Peter Spider-Man suit with a black and red focus rather than a red and blue. It's a way of making him look distinct. Second, the fact that it shows off his hair makes it feel like he is taking pride in his black heritage, again Hmm. connecting back to the community. And he wants to be able to show that off like I'm a black man and I'm proud of it. Hmm. And number three, the colors. I realize that this is subtext that is only important if you know what's going on with Miles in the comics. But that's the bisexual flag colors. Uh, That's cool. That is the reason why that suit worked well for me. I can understand, but that that's just that's my personal take on it. I said that I was going to do a defense of the Miles Evolved suit for our podcast so there it is Mm. that's why i like the suit in a game with as much like visual customization options as this i think it's fine like i know that the game shepherds you into the two suits for each spider-man that you have to be in the anti-venom suit for peter and you have to be in the evolved suit for miles and and that's fine i think that it helps with the spirit of the you know journey that the and the story that the writers were doing it's a bump, but it's it's hardly a deal breaker. I think it's just something that people latch on to and inflate the significance of it more than it really is. 
Okay. Um, so, yeah, I got this big essay here to talk about the feelings that I had after this game was done and how it reflects back on my long history with Spider-Man. Is there anything else that you want to say about this game before I get into that? I think that we've actually been so thorough with this. All I will say is that this continues to evolve what Spider-Man is and takes us forward. And that's all I can ever want for the things that have resonated with me at different points in my life. And Spider-Man, as we said right at the beginning, is a figure and a character and a story that I think enters a lot of people's lives at a very young age, that Mm. people are aware of it. And I think it's vindicating that even if you get older and you feel as if the age of Peter or Miles is sort of, you know, maybe you've aged beyond that, but the characters are growing as well. And for as much as I whinge about certain elements of the story or the characters or gameplay mechanics and expression and everything this game speaks to the idea of moving forward Mm. it's not just about returning to some sort of status quo it is about being the best you can be and enacting responsibility in a way that is not just a sort of nebulous like do this for all eternity as spider-man it's that you can do this in life you have because life advances and there are no guarantees. So all you can do is do the best you can. Do what you can while you can. Do what you can while you can with the power you have available to you because that's the way you heal the world. Okay, I can't cry yet. Um, I still have something to say. Okay. But that's a great lead-in to um, my little trip down memory lane here. The more I've been watching the Insomniac games play out, the more it feels like it's not just that they have a good writing team, but they specifically have someone on staff, maybe multiple peoples, that lived through Spidey in the late 80s and 90s. And therefore, the arc of Peter is heavily influenced by what Peter was going through at that time. Sure, they could have just done the research, but as someone that was also reading Spidey at that time, there's a number of plot beats and developments that feel similar. Let me take you on a journey, and maybe you can tell me at the end if you see what I see. It's generally agreed that what is referred to as the Dark Age of Comics began in 1986 with the one-two punch of The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller and Watchmen by Alan Moore. Sure, serious storytelling for adult audiences had been happening for a while at that point in comics. You can indicate stories like the X-Men's God Loves, Man Kills graphic novel or the Judas Contract arc in Teen Titans, both of those in the early 80s. Even books like Spectacular Spider-Man were headed in that direction as the four-part arc of The Death of Gene DeWolf ended in 1986. I was there for that. One of the first serious Spider-Man arcs I can remember 
Captain DeWolf being Spidey's original one ally in the NYPD. In the years that followed, there were a number of developments that added to this attempt at grittier adult sensibilities brought to the then three monthly Spider-Man titles. Over the next seven years, we'd see the introduction of Venom as a deadly new villain, as well as the expansion of the symbiote storyline to include new villains like Carnage and Scream. Venom himself went from just being someone that wanted to kill Peter into an anti-hero, a lethal protector to go with the dark, edgy 90s. It was also during this time we had other serious story arcs like Craven's Last Hunt, where Craven hunted Spider-Man down, put him into a state of simulated death. On top of that, burying Peter alive, meaning he had to dig his way out of the ground to escape, and then donned the Spider-Man costume out of a desire to be better than Peter, defeat enemies he couldn't. And the story ended with Craven taking his own life, a controversial plot point for the time. In 1993, things started really ramping up. This was the year of two major events. The first was the crossover Maximum Carnage, which pushed Spider-Man hard in the direction of killing his enemies in order to save lives. Peter finally manages to win without doing that, thanks to the influence of Aunt May, but it was touch and go for a while. The second story involved the final tragic end of Harry Osborn, who had been struggling with mental instability for years at this point and died from cumulative side effects of his father's Green Goblin serum. At the culmination of that story arc, he's trying to kill Peter once again as vengeance for his father's death, but in the end, their long friendship won out over the Goblin persona, and he spared Peter's life, passing, holding Peter's hand, end scene. I'm skipping over a lot of connected tissue here. Bear with me, I'm trying to get to the most relevant details. Things start coming to a head for Peter Parker. And I feel like a bunch of this was mandated from above. They wanted to make Spider-Man dark and edgy in order to sell more comics. It was the 90s. This was in the pre-internet era, so I don't know what the fan response was like. But there were more and more storylines that stressed Peter mentally and emotionally to the breaking point. His marriage and friendship suffered. He did nothing save for trying to be Spider-Man and became more brutal and unhinged in combat. Some longtime villains were trying to redeem themselves, and Spidey refused to believe it was possible where he once would have been sympathetic. And it was into this setup that the Clone Saga came to be. Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. <laughs> Other people can explain to you better how the mess of the Clone Saga came about from the editorial and marketing side of things. The TLDR was that this years-long crossover was an attempt at hitting the reset button. No more dark and tormented Peter, no more marriage to Mary Jane. They introduce Ben Riley, a clone of Peter Parker that hadn't been through all of the dark storylines of the past decade or so. He had all of Peter's powers, but a few new gadgets that made him unique. Donning a new costume, he dubbed himself the Scarlet Spider, and while the two men came into conflict at first, over time, they bonded like brothers and fought alongside each other. 
at the culmination of this story, it's ostensibly discovered that Ben was the original Peter and the Peter Parker that we've been following since the original clone storyline back in, checks notes, 1975 was the clone created by one of Spidey's enemies. This is framed as an opportunity to let the Peter that married MJ walk off into the sunset to focus on being a husband and future father and Ben Riley to take over as Spider-Man. Now, obviously, in the comics, none of that stuck. Editorial might have gotten what they wanted with a Spider-Man they could have happy stories with again, as well as soap opera dating hijinks, but the fans were not happy with this seeming compromise. This reset seemed to nullify over 20 years of storytelling, and the evolving story of Ben as Spidey was just not compelling as a replacement. I'm not going to get into how they retconned it, as it's kind of depressing and is one of the moments that led me to give up comics until my interest was resurrected by, of all things, the Ultimate Spider-Man comics. You know, the reboot that eventually gave us Miles Morales? Uh, how about that? Strange how things work. Now, the Insomniac Spider-Man world is obviously not lifted from this point in Spider-Man history entirely. A good portion of the first game came from an era of Spider-Man that is post One More Day. The second time I stopped reading about the 616 version of Peter. Is this like the unskippable thing of, and that was the second time I stopped reading Spider-Man <laughs> comics? Well, there's only two, so the joke doesn't keep going from there. For now. As mentioned, Miles himself came from the Ultimate Universe before being integrated into 616 thanks to the Secret Wars crossover. A completely different crossover than the one from the 80s that originally introduced the symbiote suit. Yeah, I know. Comics are weird! weird. <sighs> but the thing that makes the Insomniac games great is that they aren't afraid to start over and tell their own story. They take little bits from Spider-Man lore all over the map and weave them together to create something new, cohesive less weighed down by decades of storytelling, hampered by capitalism, and yet also true to the essence of Spider-Man. I don't think that the Insomniac team set out to write their games with the Dark Age of Spider-Man in mind, and yet I cannot help but think about how this game follows a version of these events, but purely from the perspective of writing a good story rather than an attempt to sell more comics, more content. Miles Morales is a far more compelling alternative Spider-Man than Ben Riley ever was, and it means that instead of getting to retell old stories like Marvel editors want, a following Spider-Man Insomniac game will get to tell new ones based on Miles' experience, much like the Sony Spider-Verse movies. The old days have some amazing stories that I remember loving as a child and a tween and a teen. So in many ways, these games feel like a melding of all the best parts of that Spidey with the progressive and modern sensibilities of a Peter and a Miles that feel at home in the 21st century. These games are not afraid to give us both the things we love and remember but also shake things up and show us something new and more in line with what modern audiences 
would like from their superhero stories. So thank you, Insomniac, for giving us these stories and these games. Thank you for sharing that. All I can think of uh, with how writers have navigated and figured out how Spider-Man should be, what that he should be returned to, how he should keep going, and Insomniac seeing all of that and deciding. Everyone keeps telling me how my story is supposed to go. Yes. Nah, I'm going to do my own thing. Yes. Yes. Thank you. What a great way to tail that off. Um, also, thinking about it, you, you joked about it earlier, but I've been keeping up with what they're doing with 616 Peter in the comics right now. And I got to say, if I'd gotten back into reading Spidey again, the current crop of stories would have definitely got to be going, and that was the third time I stopped reading Spider-Man. <laughs> uh, thank goodness we have Insomniac. Thank goodness we have Insomniac, yeah. All right, Greg. Uh, I guess we'll be back when the next... <laughs> well, we'll when the be DLC back... comes out, we'll talk about oh, it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, that's absolutely true. If When the DLC comes out, I'm sure we'll do a show on that. We'll talk about many other things in the meantime... Mm. Because we've still got other pieces of media out there that we want to cover. I, I still need to come up with a good framing for it. But we are going to do, finally, that Everything Everywhere All at Once show. And, you know, a number of other things mm -hmm. that come down the pike. So, once more, thank you, Toby, for being my partner in crime. Wait, holy shit, with the age difference, does this make me Peter? Does this make you Miles? <laughs> We're doing the thing. We're pointing at each other. Thwip, <laughs> <laughs> thwip. <laughs> That's as good a place as any to end it. But as it turns out, there is one last thing. After listening to my show in the edit, Toby decided he wanted to go back and take another crack at speaking to his frustration with Craven, spurred on by my own words. So this time, I will let my co-host... Have the last word. Because it's a doozy. In listening to the full edit of the final Spider-Man show, I thought I would interject with one of my uncommon editorial editions that I would send along to Greg and include here for you all. See, I think that Greg raises some very well-observed points about Craven's place in all of this. The way that all of my issues and visceral responses to the character that I voiced in the session, how that fits in with the larger narrative and statement that the game is making. And I think that he's done a great point both in the recording session and in the edit, in identifying why the game is stronger with him playing a piece within it. But I still wanted to voice just that one thing that I felt like I was just at the edge of reaching in my frustrated immediate reaction but couldn't quite get here. At the time I was grasping at a lot of the more immediately accessible bugbears of his philosophy and why it irritates me. Greg, you say that you absolutely believe that people like this exist. 
that's the thing. I know they exist. That's the point. That's what bugs me, that this is a very real kind of asshole. And my reaction feels as intense as it does because this is a dangerous type of person, someone with power and resources and the will to make his philosophy in actuality with no one to go against him. The only obstacles that are in his way are Spider-Man and eventually Venom, but the problem is that they aren't the obstacles to his destination, they are his destination. They are the glorious death in battle that he has been searching for. He's one of those characters who embodies the online discourse as we got at with the whole debate me personality that he cultivates and just swings around over the course of the game. It's frustrating because you can't just say, oh, well, let's just not engage with him because the problem is he's putting people at risk and you have to deal with the problems of his followers and him himself. So what do you do? Do you just deal with the problem and say, yeah, I guess he will enjoy the process, but there's only so much we can do about it? I guess the thing that left me feeling uneasy is that while there's some poetic value in telling a story where the villain does actually get what he wants and our heroes have to navigate the consequences of that happening and heal from that, heck, we've just wrapped on talking about Steamheart and while that isn't a story where villains get what they want, our heroes have to come to terms with the damage that has been dealt by the end of that narrative. And I feel that to a certain extent with Spider-Man 2 as well. So what was it I was looking for? What do we do with a character like this? How do we find an antidote to the poison that he brings just by existing and insisting upon his way of life and his view of the world? That's where it hit me, that the game does actually provide an antidote to that way of thinking. The main narrative does actually culminate in an ending that refutes Craven's philosophy, that it is humanity that wins out, not the higher predator that dominates the new ecosystem. But there's a smaller part of the game in its side missions, where you have now heard our own emotional reactions to those two all-important friendly neighborhood Spider-Man requests, you sit with two men nearing the end of their life, much like Craven keeps telling us he is nearing the end of his life despite being such physical capabilities. And these two gentlemen with Howard who can't know that he is moments away from the end of his life but nevertheless feels an approaching end and the grandfather with Alzheimer's they both know that they are fading and they accept the fear they don't angrily rail against it there is fear and there is acceptance 
and for all that Craven talks about honour and finding a perfect death. I frankly spit on that. I spit on the notion that a perfect death is one that satisfies the self with false ideas of vainglorious acts of strength and dominance of your surroundings, and even when you are being taken out, that you did so clawing at the reaper and the world around you. I embrace the paths of those who don't necessarily embrace their end without reservation, but nevertheless find some sort of serenity in those uncertain last moments. I suppose that I would have loved it if more of the main game actually looked at this and told Craven to his face, you're full of shit and everything that you strive for is wrong. What I want for him is the outcome that we have discussed in a certain late stage villain in Steamheart. I don't want a death for Craven because that's what he wants. I want a death of what he believes in. But in the absence of that, I will so gratefully take the nourishing moments of acceptance in stark contrast to Craven's anger and denial. So that's us, and that's the first episode of the new year 2024. Beyond the Windor will return with future shows on Doctor Who, God of War, a stop-motion animation movie spectacular, and many more forays into worlds beyond Centrum. But we're going to try and close out Steamheart first, so look forward to more of that soon. To close us out, since Alex didn't do a show on the Miles Morales game, and that has the most licensed music, let's do a track from that game that's thematically resonant. Until next time, this is once more the artist Lecrae with Where We Come From. This is where we come from, yeah we did it. City on my back, I'm committed. This is where we come from, yeah we made it. Now the whole team celebrating. We like, uh oh, 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 oh. Me now I'm with the home team. No beginner, I'm a winner. Took a couple losses, now I'm cooking. Let me simmer. Yeah, yeah, tunnel vision. All I see is win, 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 win. This my city section where you been, 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 been. We move faster alone, but go further together. We can weather any weather forever. A dream team, I'd have seen things. Confidence is on a hundred thousand. I got family for miles, running up the mileage. Made it through some trials and some tribulations. Now me and the team, I had celebrating. Yeah, this is where we come from. Yeah, we did it. City on my back, I'm committed. This is where we come from. Yeah, we made it. Now the whole team celebrating. We like, uh oh, 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 oh. you knew a new day is approaching turn the gray skies into blue i grew up on the same block school of hard knocks had to get in on a hard time took the hard shots but we made it anticipated highly
already decorated. The whole team is winning, celebrated. The victory is all mine, all mine, and everything is all right, all right. And you know how to see things. Confidence is on a hundred thousand. I got family for miles, running up the mileage. Made it through some trials and some tribulations. Now me and the team out here celebrating. Yeah, this is where we come from. Yeah, we did it. City on my back, I'm committed. This is where we come from. Yeah, we made it. Now the whole team celebrating. We like, oh, 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 oh.